podcast world. This is Caribbean Power Lunch, where we feature Black-owned businesses. I am your host, Kevin Valley, and today I am talking to neuroscientist and part-time app developer, <laughs> Mr. Keston Walkins. Keston, how are you doing, sir? Yeah, I'm excellent, man. Good evening. Right. How are you doing? I'm good, man. I'm good, man. Yeah, I'm yeah, talking yeah. to a brainiac right now. You know, right now. <laughs> I'll take that. I'm getting ready to get bright. I'm getting ready to get smart. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. I'll take that. So you're a PhD candidate. Mm-hmm. You founded this business called Allegory, which is about neuroinnovation. That's right. Yeah. It's co-founded. So my business partner, his name is Johanse Ayodike. And yes, we did co-found the business Allegory. And it is a neuroinnovation company. It didn't just start there, but it is a neuroinnovation company. And I'm sure... As you go along through the, mm-hmm. the interview, you would ask what you need to about it. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I will. Yeah, I know. <laughs> right. I know you had a company for a little while called Communicare. Yes. Communicating with stroke patients. Yes. It was a real awesome journey, actually. That's kind of what honed my skills for a lot of the other business projects that I embarked on and consultancy that I embarked on after that. Yeah. Right. So, you are the man to go to when it comes to anything about the brain, right? Where you want to figure out how to get the best <laughs> use out of somebody's brain, talk to this guy. That's that's the plan. I, I, I do want to be an authority on it, but making it accessible to people. You understand? That's the core thing. Because so many people want to understand themselves, you want to understand the brain, and a lot of the stuff, like the articles and, and science articles, I think they're incredible, stuff that these researchers do, and they're brilliant. But my aim is to make it accessible to everybody through our research, through our projects, and through our initiatives. And that's why we call it neuroinnovation, because we're taking something that just it's hidden in a book somewhere and we're really bringing it out into the real world as something that people can use, touch, feel, and experience. So you would have just turned 31 on uh, that's right. that's well, I know your birthday is February 29th, which didn't exist this year. So no. you're, technically you're eight years old, but <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's seven and three quarter if you wanna, you know, split hairs, but yeah, there we go. Right, so you did your PhD. Well, you're doing a PhD in molecular genetics and mm-hmm. bioinformatics. <laughs> Is that supposed to say those Bioinformatics, <laughs> bioinformatics. Oh, <laughs> well, we yeah, I don't make any matrix, but yeah, <laughs> informatics definitely. Well, not yet on the path you want. <laughs> yeah, who knows? But I want to go knows? back. I want to go back. So, all the information available on you online starts from the point you you started your PhD. Is it okay? Right, mm-hmm. four years ago. But I want to know what, what inspired this. So back when you're in your high school days, even in your primary school days, did you, were you always a love of science? Yeah. So, I mean, there's little whispers on the internet of things that I did when I was younger, but you very well researched, so maybe they're all hidden <laughs> yeah, they in, in pages in, in, on, on, on Google. But yeah, um, I started off, well, actually, I really loved science when I was much younger. I would spend time reading encyclopedias. I didn't really like, um, what's this thing called? You know storybooks i didn't like that right. very you didn't much like novels right? no i didn't like novels but on occasion there were there were a couple that you know they were cool but i love science fiction but i also just love to read encyclopedias so reading encyclopedias like is like a glorified dictionary right? yeah, so yeah, that's st- what you would i would down. also read a dictionary too because i i like the idea of new of words and i like because i'm a creative even though i'm a scientist right i used to write do performance poetry and do performance and i we actually had a show that's one of the things that happened before called writer's block and it was co-created between us at Queen's Royal College and Bishops, right? We put that okay. together. It was it was phenomenal. And if anybody's listening from there, you would know what we're talking about. It was a great show. And some people did some a little bit of research on the show as well. And I'll say this, it was really cool. It was the first show in Trinidad and Tobago in, um, that was televised 
that was developed by secondary school students. Okay, first of it. And then also one of the first shows where, especially in secondary schools, where there was a male and female host. I This this is what Amilka was telling me. Amilka Sanatan, he, he was telling me stuff that he was, hey, look, you did this. That's real cool. And I was like, oh, wow, okay. So anyways, the point is I had a penchant for science-related things, but I also had an interest in creative things. But it didn't materialize. It didn't, it didn't congeal until I was in secondary school. Just interest in science, is it hereditary? Were your parents scientists or no? Your, I know your mom bakes cakes. I know I mean, bakes so, is a science. So my, my yes, it is. My mom is actually a teacher, right? Mm-hmm. Right now she got a promotion. She's a curriculum officer, but she was a teacher when I was much younger. And uh, yeah, she she baked cakes to help us survive. Actually, that was the main thing. She's very very hardworking. Um, or sort of the marriage union had dissolved for the reasons that are typical right. in Trinidad, and. Uh, <laughs> and anyways it that's what it was and she took care of us and she had to take extra jobs so she became an excellent baker and she also was she used to do food and nutrition and also garment making so she would sew as well and that's how she took care of the family nobody in my family really had a science background senior mom go through that and senior mom in that state of hey i have to do this to support my family does that propel your ambition in some way yeah in many ways uh, in some ways i think that are so subtle i haven't even realized yet i think one of one of the things f- for sure was that she was very hard working and she would exchange her sleep for our survival and i think that was one of the key things that i understood now i i have a true um, value for sleep right <laughs> yeah. but it, it really taught me to if you really want to make something great in your world, you have to sacrifice time. And that's what life is made of, right? And un- unfortunately, we can only pinch pieces off where we can because when you have 24 in a day and a third of it, if you sleep well, is what you use for sleep. So we have to surrender in some cases the sleep that we get in order to get the things that we want. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and yeah, and we're going to talk a lot about time management and focus and all that a little bit later. Mm-hmm. But what I want to get to, okay, so you're in secondary school. You're putting on these shows. You're on um, your... Your sister schools, your team, your yeah. college, your peers, and your sister school bishops, which is right next door. Honorary sister school. So bishops isn't officially Queen's Royal College sister school. I just say that because yeah, this yeah, in yeah. France, so people might uh, be upset. Oh, you don't want to exclude anybody. No, 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 but we all know, and I, I, sir, I submit this obviously with not minding the terrible scrutiny I will receive that bishops and C is really our sister school <laughs> in heart. All right, so we, we yeah. get through there, and um, you end up in London. Yes, I, I went to school in the University of Sussex in Brighton, England, where I studied medical neuroscience, and it was probably one of the best periods in my life. Brighton is a real weird, quirky city. It was amazing. I think the last time that I went, I went to visit, I think it was like a year or two ago, and this guy comes out in a wedding dress with a dildo strapped to his head. And uh, I just thought, look at that, this welcome... I'm back in Brighton again. Wow. Home sweet home type thing. It's not because dildos and, and wedding dresses are common. It's just the city is very free and very permissive of you being who you want to be. And I think that was an important exodus for me in my life because I had to leave Trinidad, obviously, to go there to study. But I was going there and I was finally being able to be who I wanted to be. You understand? Because in Trinidad, there's a lot of pressure 
for people to be one thing or the other. And that's typical of small island states. There's so much pressure to become this or to become that. And that isn't the case in larger cities. That isn't the case in, in the Western world and, and other places. So for me, that was, that was a really important part of my development. I could eat ice cream for breakfast if I wanted to. Not that I would. The interesting thing is that I still carried on with some of the, the cultural norms that I had before when I left. But at the same time, I still was able to explore myself. Uh, in all on our forms. Okay. So putting aside the um this weird combination of creativity with a wedding dress and a dildo mm-hmm. yeah. and my neighbor's car alarm. So medical neuroscience. Yes, medical neuroscience. Because I mean so most people after they most people here in, in the Caribbean, mm-hmm. when they do well in science in the secondary school, they go to med school, the straight med school, they want to be a doctor, they want to be a surgeon, whatever yes. it is. You already decided hey, what's going on. I want to work on your brain. Yeah, I didn't want to do medicine. I I really loved the brain. I was very, very fascinated with it. And um, one of the heroes I had when I was younger was Ben Carson. Um, rest his soul. <laughs> you you take from that what you will. But yeah, um, I, I really liked him when I was younger. And I thought this was something phenomenal. And I loved the brain in general. It was just a part of who we are, but you just can't see it. And I thought that was quite, quite cool. So anyways, I signed up to do medical neuroscience. I enjoyed the program thoroughly. And the group was real small. It was like five of us that was doing the medical neuroscience course. Five of you all in yeah. London doing this program. In, in Brighton, yeah. So five or six of us. Right, and there were others who were doing neuroscience in general. As a matter of fact, the University of Sussex was, if I'm not wrong, the first university in all of the UK to have a neuroscience program, okay. right? So the program has pedigree and I was really happy to be there. I didn't find out that until I went there, but it was quite, quite cool. You go from that, so we spent some years there, mm-hmm. right? And then is it right after that you decided, hey, what's going on? I'm going to do my PhD because I just love oh. studying this so, so I much. So I came back to Trinidad. I came back to Trinidad. I actually wanted to come back home. I didn't go to my graduation because I really, really find ceremonies long and annoying, right? So I didn't want to go to graduation and I came back and then I I was real fortunate to get a job in neuroscience doing research at the University of the West Indies in Faculty of Medical Sciences with Professor Jonas Adai. So I was doing research there. We did research in epilepsy and anxiety and I really enjoyed that. Some of it was a bit mundane because we had to do experiments. Actually, my work was on rats, right? On rats? On rats, yes. I had to do a surgical procedure almost every day where we would cut their, their skulls open and take recordings from their brain. So those who um, have things against experiments on animals, yes, I was a malfactor in that regard. But I, I learned a lot. Yeah, what did you learn from these rats? <laughs> yeah, so... A few things. One, one is that you need to have steady hands if you if you're doing surgeries. So big respect to all the surgeons who are listening, and big respect to surgeons in the world because uh, this, yeah, big respect. Anyways, the other one is um, we gave them some drugs in some cases, and then we gave them some plant extracts in other cases, and we were looking how at how that affected brain activity, but also how it affected uh, their behavior. So part of it was done on bench. When I say on the bench, on the surgical surgical bench, bed, sorry. And then others were done with like behavioral lab things. That for me was quite good. But I do want to take a step back sure. to university because you hold all the things I've done so far and you think, oh, wow, that's real awesome. Ooh, has he had any struggles? But I've had many. And when I was at university, um, I didn't have enough. I didn't even have enough money to go 
to university and I told everybody I just go in, right? And people was like, you're going to fail. They didn't tell me that. They told my mother that. So she had to, sh- to shoulder a lot of that. You told your for mother me. that you're going to fail? Yeah, it's like, why are you going away to study with no money? And obviously, I do agree. It's quite the curious, possibly crazy thing to do. But I did. And I got a lot of support from people in Trinidad, like um, Wendell Man Warren and they, even Brother Resistance, um, Mongol Patissa, Ryzen. Lots of awesome people contributed their time and energy to to help me to go to university. And I've not covered the whole list. So if your name is missing, it's just, it's gone for me right now. But yeah. So anyways, when I was there, I had to learn how to survive. I got a job working in a Levi store and I would work there during the summers and I'd work there during the term. I didn't actually want to do a job because I didn't want to do what I was calling a may I help you job. But it turned out to be one of my favorite places. And one of the other things that I did, I think was really important. And I have to say this because I think it's important for people to be able to properly meet me. And in, 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 you can't see me, but you know what I mean? A friend from work, he was actually one of the managers. He taught me how to fix Xboxes. Okay. At Levi. At Levi. You're calling Levi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, try it in He taught me how to fix Xboxes. So what, what I would do was I would take my salary, buy broken Xboxes on eBay, fix them and then resell them right in some cases you made like 50 pounds profit in other cases you make as much as 100 pounds profit depending on what you sell and i think that was probably the earliest point in business that i put my hand to yeah and that was good and then the thing is i got tired of doing the fixing the xboxes so what i started to do was just sell the equipment to fix the xboxes because a lot of people were doing it and wanted to buy so that's kind of what i did while i was there and then my creative side because i used to i I would do performance performance poetry and, and and things like that people started to request that i do workshops with children so that's kind of how i made money to take me through university Obviously, I got help from my mom as well. She made huge sacrifices. And then um, when, whenever, whenever Wendell and they would come, that's Three Canal, right? Whenever they would come to England, they would gift me money to help me to carry through school. So wow. there's no way I, if anybody goes through oh, the self-made, I don't think it's possible to be self-made. I, I, don't, I think it's impossible, yeah. right? But I certainly wasn't. And this is a little window into how I became who I am now. I mean, that's great. So, I mean, the community really helped you. Yeah, and big time. And I could tell just by your work subsequent to that, that you were all about giving back to the community. Mm-hmm. That's why I love Trinidad. Yeah. I might not like it, but I love it. I understand what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand what you mean. You know what I mean? Just a little play on words. You you developed an app called Communicare. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. After I was working at Mount Hope, I actually started a business with my brother. We were doing interactive advertising and lots of different things, right? I was taking the whole, I'm doing neuroscience and then applying it to design and advertising. So that was my my step into the market. Right. But a friend of mine, she had a stroke. Her name was Sybil. It's an old lady from Grenada. We used to go and sit down in the gallery and I may or may not have liked her granddaughter. Another story, <laughs> another time. So... Anyways, anyways, so she got sick and the family asked me to come by to help, but I didn't know if I could have helped, but they called me because I was in Mount Hope. Remember I told you I was in Mount Hope doing my PhD and I was working there. 10 minutes away? Oh, it was, it was, you know, minutes away, just three minutes away because the university in Mount Hope shares the same compound as the hospital. So I went and the nurses were very nice. They, for some reason, they treated me like I was an official person. But I was like, okay, fine. This is the, this is the way it's going. So I was like, I said, what's happening? He said, well, 
we don't know when she needs to be clean. We don't know when she needs to be fed. You know, when we do our rounds, when we get our rounds, because she cannot speak, because she she couldn't speak, right? She had had aphasia. So I said, well, surely this is not the first time we've had a person in our hospital who's had a stroke. Surely it is not. So what do you guys do? And they said, well, we just figure it out. So I found that very, very curious because one is that they think that they could just figure it out. And two, it suggested that the, the Ministry of Health was training their nurses in clairvoyance, all right, some way to sort of tap into the person's brain. Absolutely not. So I said, okay, here's what. Let me go find a chart. And I was looking for a chart online. I couldn't find one. So I said, okay, I have to make one. And I was just intended to make a chart. That's all, a paper chart. And then over time, it basically matured into a technology platform. And Communicate, we've won awards for it. It's now in sort of a senescent phase. It's not dead. It's just quiet. It's just sleeping. But hold on, hold on, yeah, hold yeah, on, okay. hold on. You said it, it just went from a chart to a platform. Yes, that, yes. We know some big steps, right? So Yeah, okay. <laughs> I mean, let's kind of walk us through those steps. Mm-hmm. All right, fair enough. So wh- when I was doing the chart, I was like, okay, fair enough. These are the things that we need. But what if the person can't move their hands in the case of civil? So I was like, okay, they, they could use their eyes to do it. I was like, okay. I say, but... I'll only have a certain amount of options. Maybe I needed them to have more options, but I can't get more options on a piece of paper, especially if they have to turn the pages. So I said, okay, we need to put this on a computer, right? And that's where the idea kind of got put in my head. I mean, I'm, I'm sure other things suggested it to me, but that's where it came from. And then I said, okay, I paid somebody to do a prototype for me, an MVP. Right. Right. And that minimum one- Minimum viable product. Yes, minimum viable product. And that one actually had eye tracking. We got some extra eye tracking hardware, and we were te- we tested it in uh, um, a few homes. But that couldn't have been cheap, though. No, it wasn't too expensive. It wasn't prohibitively expensive. But I got enough money to get the base version. Okay. And then I well, I paid the, I paid the developer um, to to do it as well. But that's one of the things when I when I fall in love with an idea, I put everything in, Excellent. all the chips, yeah, all the chips. And in a lot of cases, I didn't get all the chips back. You know, that, but that is business, is. right? That's, that is business. That's poker. Yeah, that's right. You, you don't always win. But the thing is, you always walk away with your experience. No matter what, you always walk away with it. So I started to look at my whole process as I cannot fail. Failure is impossible. The only failure that exists is the failure to do the thing that you want to do. That's the only failure that exists. Other, other than that, it's impossible because you're going to learn something. And I have a little book, and it, I, maybe your listeners have that too, but with all of the ideas that I want to do. Yeah. I can't do all of them now, but all of the ideas. And yeah. invariably, invariably, when something new pops up that I can actually execute, it there's something in those ideas that I can put inside this new one. Yeah, I've had a, I've got in my um, G Notes app, but I had some wild ideas in there. I think I had some powdered that's, that's alcohol and all kind of stuff. In there. <laughs> that's what it's supposed to be. That's yeah. what it's supposed to be. We're supposed to to fathom the incredible. We're supposed to create the crazy. That is just how we're supposed to be as as human beings. And there was a a video that we that was done on TEDx. I did TEDx Port of Spain, yeah. and I was talking about us in the global south, and it's really something to do with developing countries in in general, right? we have that power to make something incredible and we don't have to depend on this parochial idea that we need to get our innovations from outside. And I think countries are doing an amazing job of that. It's like in Kenya, like they're doing some real awesome stuff there with tech. And the same thing is true in Colombia. Before Colombia was a country that people would associate with cocaine and drugs, but like their e-governance, powers, just like Estonia, their entrepreneurial ecosystem, 
technology and innovation, like Colombia is doing a real, real good job, right? And for me, as a matter of fact, they're probably one of the fastest developing in terms of technology country in Latin America. They're really doing it Godzilla big, in my opinion. I look at all those things and I say, well, look, man, in Trinidad and Tobago, we have something. We're small, which means we can be agile. We can test almost anything and we don't have as much legal hurdles to jump. That's true. Right? That's a plus, right? Yeah, it's a plus. Mm -hmm. It's a plus. We can do stuff and just apologize for it after. (laughs) You get what I'm saying, right? Yeah, Yeah, which is apologize, right? And for me, that that is a ripe opportunity for innovation. As a matter of fact, most of the innovations that happen in the world happen without people thinking, oh, I need this legislation, I need that legislation, whatever. You understand what I'm saying, right? That that for me is big. So coming back to us as, as Caribbean people, coming back to us as people of developing countries, right? And that extends all over the world. It doesn't matter whether you're in the Philippines or, or you're in, in Medellin, right? It doesn't matter. It is that we can create the incredible. As a matter of fact, that is what we are supposed to do. We are supposed to create the incredible. We're supposed to look outside, see what is done, and then take that, abstract that, convert it, create it, and change it into something that is ours, something that is incredible. I'll give you a real good example. Real basic, and it sounds very silly. It might sound silly. The wheel has been created, what? It's millennia, hundreds, thousands, possibly millions. Some people would say years, but the point is millennia. The bag is something that's been around for probably just as long. But it's only last couple hundred years that we decided to put the two things together and that's hand luggage or luggage you get what i'm saying yeah and so there's all these little things that might seem inane that sort of littered around the the planet in books or wherever it is that all you have to do is put them together and you can make something that's excellent make something that's incredible and that's what we intended to do with communicare that's exactly what we intended to do is like okay a communication chat does nothing new Okay, but now we're taking it at another level where you're basically making communication accessible for the infirmed. That's really what, that's really the core of it, right? And it became something around care management because we had a challenge even in, in, in Trinidad and in other parts. As a matter of fact, we had some people we were working with in Curacao and in Colombia. People want to take care of their family at home, but they have to hire help because they have to go to work, right? So how do you track your family at home, right? And that was the innovation that we were we were creating as a value that we were creating. Okay, so you had the MVP done. Mm-hmm. What happened between then and getting it off the ground and launched and in the public domain and everything? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of storytelling. I, I, I tried to explain. <laughs> I tried to explain. So I didn't have I didn't have lots of money, but. I learned something very, very powerful. If you, even if you don't have money, you have a story. And as a matter of fact, most times is a story that is, is what makes the money. Yeah, right? That, sure, that's it. So sure. um, that was a big thing for me. So I got invited to be part of a program in the US. It was done by the US State Department at the time. And that was the Young Leaders of the Americas Initiative. All right. right? Um, yes, I interviewed a guy who was part of that, um, Gregory Skeets from Barbados. Okay, you know Gregory? I, uh, no, I don't know Gregory, but I, I know the name Skeets. Right. And Gregory is also familiar. I don't know Gregory Skeets. If that well, makes okay, sense. Okay. Right. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, but a Bayesian guy. They, yeah, they have lots of Bayesian. Oh, forgive me, Gregory Skeets, if I actually do know you and I can't remember <laughs> you, right? Okay, right. Anyways. Shout out, Greg. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I went on that program. I was actually in the pilot group. We were the first to set to go. That was phenomenal. It was something that taught me that the world is a one. Obviously, I knew it was a big place because I had traveled before, but people want to do 
they want to make stuff, they want to do stuff. And there were some people in the room that their business was fledgling like mine. Others, they were making like two, three million US a year, right? They were doing, they were doing well, right? right? So it was nice to have that kind of rapport with so many different people at so many different levels in terms of their business. And that was, that was great for me. And then I came back to Trinidad with the impetus to really push Communicare and move it to the next level. So from there, we ended up getting invited out to Argentina for something called Demand Solutions. It was something done by the Inter-American Development Bank. And I think it is an amazing program where they, they feature entrepreneurs, generally young entrepreneurs from around the world, particularly in Latin America and the Caribbean. And I was the only person from the Caribbean there. So everybody's speaking Spanish. So that was quite interesting to have that whole experience too. But the point is that I'm making from this is that the world is interested in what we have to make. Yeah. You get what I'm saying? No doubt, yeah. They, no they doubt. want to hear. It's like, oh, so what, what's Trinidad? In some cases, where is that? It's rare that I find that now, but where is that? And then you're doing what? You get what I'm saying, right? They're interested in what we have to make. So much so that Communicare won, I think, three or four awards from like agencies in Israel and Brazil and all these places, right? So that taught me a very important lesson. Even though I did not get the acclaim or the, ex the, the acceptance that I had endeavored to get from my country, from Trinidad, I still got it from a global audience. And that's important. That's super important. Yeah. Why that's important? Because it means that you don't need permission to sell to the world. And not just that, the world is waiting to buy what you have, right? Obviously, it needs to, to be something that's actually valuable, something that creates value. But the world wants to know what you have because there are people that have exactly perfectly exactly the same problem that you have they have somebody who is sick somebody who is whatever it doesn't matter the type of business that you have you know and that was my that was my big lesson there so after i finished there i came back to trinidad and well we won grants like i mentioned before and we ended up getting grants and money from the world bank through caribbean export they had a phenomenal program. The support for it was extremely good. They connected us with investors and various things around the Caribbean. I think they did a really good job. The other thing that I learned from that was there's money, yeah. right? There's money, yeah. you know, and the world isn't conspiring to thwart your ideas. As a matter of fact, the world's conspiring to give you what you want. You just have to open up yourself to get in it. And when I say open up yourself, two things. One is open your mouth and say that this is what you're doing. This is what you're going to be doing. And this is what you need. And I learned something when I was in, in Washington. Somebody said, quite aptly, if you ask for money, you'll get advice. But if you ask for advice, you'll get money. Really? Yeah. So here's the idea. If you go by somebody, say, you know what? I have a business and I need 70,000 US. They'd be like, ah, oh, okay, you need 70,000 US, man. And, and they'll just spend time telling you ideas. You know, the thing is, sometimes you ask for advice and they tell you, well, give me some money for that advice. I've not met anyone who's charged me for advice. Listen, I need your network. You need to put yeah. me on <laughs> to your network. Actually, there's probably, there's probably, probably a couple people that have. I don't necessarily see them as swindlers, but they, they have, right? Mm -hmm. So I saw how many submit. But most of the people that I interact with, no, especially, especially at those kinds of programs. Yeah. I think that's one thing that some of the Americans have really well. They just, just, just pour out and help you. You know, if you have a proper sponsor into their circle, they'll just help you. That's and they're not asking for anything back. If they're asking for something back, they'll be very clear. Like, hey, so if I give you this, this is what I want. It's not like I help you, you know, and any person there 
malign in your behind your back or whatever it is. So yeah, anyways, I learned a lot from that, but I want to come to the advice thing. One, when you go to someone and you say, well, look, man, I need money for something. Most times the people who are in your immediate network don't have the money to give you. That's the truth. As a matter of fact, there was a study done that people who are your loose friends, so like your f- the friends of your friends, right. they are the ones who actually have the most value to you. Yeah, you call that weak ties. Yes, yes, that's right. The weak ties. Yeah. So you, the people who you have weak ties with are actually the higher value people in your life in terms of like, you know, progress, right? right? So when I learned that, that was phenomenal for me too. But anyways, coming back to, coming back to um, asking for advice. When you ask for advice, the person, in a sense, it depends on the person that you ask, but they get connected to your cause. So they will exercise or use their connections and in some cases, even their money. Because they, they've invested, essentially, in invested the idea. intellectual right. capacity. Like- because nobody wants to have a horse that they've put in the track die. That's right. Nobody. So they attach themselves to the idea of the horse. The horse, they develop ownership of the of the horse, the idea. And then they're running with you in the, in the race. So for me, that was real important. That was extremely important. And that's why it's important to have your story. To know your story and to tell your story. Even if you don't have money. Now, maybe every month or so, someone asks me about how much money I need to invest in my business. Right? Oh, okay. Now people ask. And before... I was seen as crazy, like nothing, it wouldn't, wherever it is, wouldn't work. If you listen to my story, well, if you reflect on what was said earlier on in the podcast, I said people said I would fail. And then it went to, people said I was crazy because I still went, you understand? But then now it became, wow, sh- crap, this man, brilliant. Yeah. You get what I'm saying, right? And that's the process that you have to be able to go through. But the only way you could go through that process is to have two things, grit and persistence. There's actually a book called Grit. is well worth your listeners read. It talks about like the key markers for success and different things like that. One of them is people who have done extracurricular activities for at least a year mm-hmm. in in high school. But tell me something. But there's another story. Yeah. What I mean, I want I also want to get back to communicate what happened mm-hmm. communicate. But you mentioned grit and persistence, right? Yes. How do you maintain that grit and persistence in the face of all this adversity and in the face of all this doubt? Yeah, good question. So I think... This, Especially in a tough economy. Yeah, okay, okay, yes, yes, yes. I'll talk about that because I think also it's connected to my mental health. <laughs> so I will, I will talk about that. Um, I like to split it into three parts. There's a short term, there's a medium term, and there's a long term. The long term is the goal that I have in mind, the thing that I want to see happen, the thing that drives me or pulls me forward, okay? And then the, the short term is obviously the thing that's happening right now, the things I have to complete right now. So I know where I want to go, but I'm one of those people that I live in the future. Okay? Do you dreamer? Uh, yeah, I'm a dreamer. But th- my dreams in the future is like an anchor. That it's con- like, a, like a fish pole, like a fish rod. You know this? And it's constantly winding in. So I'm hooked. And it's constantly winding in. I love in. that metaphor, man. Oh, well, good. Because I just made it up. <laughs> okay. But that's, that's how it is. So I'm, right. I, I get hooked by this idea or this thing that I want to do. And it's constantly reeling me in. So that, that's one part of it. So there's, there's this magnetism towards my goal. The other part is that connecting with people who want a similar thing, that's super important. As a matter of fact, that is one of the fundamental things that we need as human beings. And that is society. 
We need that. So I, I connect with people who want something similar. That's short term. And in the medium, it's making alliances to execute that thing. So those people who there with me in the short, like the close, that's when I could, I could tell them what's going on. They could tell me what they're doing and I kind of feed off their energy or they feed off mine. But aligning with people to now execute because you have to execute. There's no way that, that proverbial pole, metaphorical pole can pull you forward if you don't execute. So I align with people and I love making partnerships. I love making collaborations. I've seen the Americans. I've seen the British. I've seen the Latin Americans do that. And they have pages that is like replete with collaborators. And you think, how in the world these people do all this stuff? It's because they borrow and they, they lean on their partners. But that's not something that you find in a lot of small island states, especially small island states. And as a matter of fact, you even see that in the animal kingdom. Okay. Well, when the island's small, the animals tend to be smaller because the resources are less. But we don't follow the same rules as the animals. And I explain because we have connections to outside. We can bring resources from outside. We can exchange ideas from outside. The animals don't have that ability. So we don't have to re- be protracted. We can actually grow even though we're in a small island state. We don't have to be protracted. We can grow even though we're in a developing country. Right? So I think that's, that's real important because in some, in some countries, hopefully not your own, if you live in a small island state or, you know, a young nation, people have what we call a crab in barrel kind of attitude. Right? right? And I think the, the Western way of saying that is the culture of scarcity. Right. Yeah. But that's dangerous. As a matter of fact, our economic, economic system is actually based on the principle that resources are infinite. Am I right or am I wrong? No, you're very right. Very right. It's based on resources are infinite. No, I don't necessarily agree with that paradigm, but it's useful. Okay? It's a useful paradigm because if it's not infinite, it's not infinite, at least, at least for you. Like, the difference between one and a trillion is so huge that it will feel like a big thing. You know, it might feel it not, it is not infinite, obviously, but it feels so desperate, so different, so huge. And that for me, made me realize, that idea made me realize, but wait, now, why is China sell in Trinidad alone? You know, in Latin America and the Caribbean, we have literally f- f- over 500 million people. And if I sell everybody something for one US dollar, if I just sell everybody something for one US dollar, then, you know, obviously that's not how it works, but you get right. what I'm saying, yeah. right? No, I mean, it could work like that depending mm-hmm. if you're selling something mass market, like, I don't know, soap. Yeah. But or, if you're selling... Or you sell half of them that for $2, you know, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of like that, yeah, exactly. So I thought to myself, that is our way out. That is our way as as developing nations to really make a huge difference. And I think one of the countries to ace that on an incredible level would be Singapore. Singapore started off their independence at the same time as we did, right? No natural resources or nigh none. No gold, not only just a little bit of gold that they had, no oil, none of those things. But today, they're one of the financial capitals on the planet. When I say that, I mean... PayPal, all those transactions pass through Singapore and they, they pinch a little piece. They now also do refining of gas, natural gas. And you think to yourself, but what do you have there though? Nothing. Just a different mindset. So yeah, I mean, that's interesting, right? Yeah. And listen, this segue has been going on for a real long time. I, okay. I love this segue. Okay. I love this segue because the governments in the Far East, 
they have a completely different mindset yes. than the governments in, on, the, on the Western Hemisphere. And you will allude into that. So I just want to just continue on that. So yeah. why is it that countries like Singapore and China and even India are able to be so successful compared to countries in the West where, you know, you're seeing a lot of high debt and everything, everything. Mm-hmm. I think it's because they've made generational wealth a form of nationalism. And I think that that is, I know no way am I like a political scientist or anything like that, right? But I just observe and with the little knowledge that I have, I realized that's one of the key things. They're playing the game for a long time as a contiguous, in terms of time, a continuous nation. Uh, China is one of the longest, right? And then you also have India is one of the longest and they're right now one of the fastest growing economies in the world, right? right. And you look at that and they understand the concept that they're playing for hundreds of years or thousands exactly. of years down the road. Exactly. That's how they play the game. While in smaller countries, especially ones that have gotten independence f- just fresh, like us, so what, f- just over 50 years, you know, 50, between 50 and 60 years. And you think, well, now we don't understand that. So when we play the game, we play in the game one, if at the lowest level for ourselves from month to month. Okay. You know, you're, you're now in the middle class, so you're now starting to play the game for your children. But that's not how they play the game. That's not how they play the game. Their time is, okay, this is my piece, and my children will take this piece, and my children will take this piece. But in the West, they have very, very strong individualism. It is not how the other nations in the far West, and even, even nations nearby, a good example would be um, Cuba to some degree, right? They have a more nationalistic way of looking at things. It's 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 the whole right and they live obviously very different from the way they live in the west so anyways the point i'm getting at that's one of the things that has stood in our way that is who we are so it's not something that we could escape but it's not necessarily something that we sh- we have to live by that dogma and the people who are listening to this podcast i think the moment that you realize your mortality how important your mortality is is the moment that you start to make a difference in the world that point where you realize crap i'm going to die then you realize, okay, what am I going to do with what I have left? And I started to think about my death when I was 17 or 18. That might sound very, very strange, but my mortality was in front of me since then. And it was something that made me think a lot. As a matter of fact, I don't necessarily live my life in a constant fear of passing, but I live my life as in, okay, I don't have much time left. So let's see what I'm going to do with the time that I have. And it's not frantic. It's not feverish. It's actually deliberate. It, Sounds clinical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To some degree. I mean, obviously, you know, I I run naked in the wind, you know, ever so often. Metaphorically. Metaphorically. Yes. God no. <laughs> no, no, no. But uh, you get you get my point. Yeah. Right. So so yeah. So anyways, you you get what I'm saying. We have yeah. a different culture, and and the, the the nationalism and the idea of generational wealth is something that is kind of lacking on this side. Okay. Of the pond. So. Segway aside, that was a nice 20 minute mm. segue, but you was know, pulling all, <laughs> all the way back to mm-hmm. communicate, you had that going, you had international recognition and everything, you're getting some traction, mm-hmm. but then something happened, yeah, and you had to kind of transition out of that, out yes. of that, yes, 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 yes into yes, yes. allegory, yeah. So, good, qu- uh, good, because that also comes down, con- is connected to mental health. We've got not covered a lot of things, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went through a serious phase of depression. Like, I wasn't eating. Um, I just, just, just apathy, which is typical. Um, I would never really thought about suicide. I didn't have suicidal thoughts or anything like that, but I just, 
drained and consumed is because when you don't get what you want or when you don't get what you hope to get, then it's really messed with you. Wow. So right. is it that your whole life, so you're a very bright guy, obviously, right? Mm, thank so you. is that <laughs> is it that your whole life you're accustomed to doing so well, you're doing exceedingly well, and you feel like this one particular time, you feel like you failed something. Like It's not really to fail something, but mm-hmm. you feel like you failed that person. Oh, oh, I see what you're saying. No, it was that it I didn't get what I want. Just that? Yeah, it was not. It was, of course, of course, the, there's the thing where I, I put all this effort in, but in the day-to-day running of the whole thing, I was not getting what I wanted. Right. And I think that was something that I didn't understand at that point, that it was important for me as an entrepreneur to have wins, uh-huh. right? It's important for us, in order for us to keep playing, we have to have wins. There were some cool studies on, done with rats that even they would, they would work just to play. In order for us to keep working, we have to have a win. If you don't have a win, then you f- stop feeling like working. You get what I'm saying, right? So for me, when I was doing stuff with the business, like it was real, like the high I would get, right? And as you challenge with living in the future, okay, you don't take the time to celebrate the present. So I was constantly running towards the future, not taking the time to enjoy the present time. And then when the future started to look blurry and the present started to get difficult, I didn't have sort of the emotional energy to carry through the lull through that difficult period. And then I also started to connect the reason for the business having its its down to me. I mean, it because of me, mm-hmm. but in reality, it was not. It, it, your business not doing well, of course, your effort has a part to play in the whole thing, but your business is not you. It's something, it might be an extension of you, but it is not you. You understand? And that was real important for me because I was thinking, well, okay, I'm a failure. And it was one of the first times I used them words. Yeah. Right? And that was hard. But then I realized something very, 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 very important. This was my take-home message after coming out of the whole thing and coming into allegory too. It was the power of the team, the people that you have around you, that is more valuable than what you're working on. Who you have around you is more valuable than what you're working on. That's like, take what I'm saying, like stop the video here, write that down, <laughs> or stop the audio, whatever it is, and write that down. That's super important. Who you are working with is more important than what you're working on. And I learned that. The team that I had before, they're great people, but we didn't mesh well enough. Right. But I didn't understand that. I thought, yeah, you work at anybody, you know, I could, you know. But I didn't have certain parts of me developed, Right. Um, very entrepreneurial, um, but poor management to have high managerial skills. And there's actually a book um, called The E-Myth. It does a good job of explaining that. So if each person is made up as, an, as a business person, they have the entrepreneur in you, you have the technician, and you have the manager. So i very good at entrepreneurial, very good at technician, but not very good at being a manager. But the partner that I had was very, very good at technician, very good at manager, very good at technician primarily, and then not so much as entrepreneurial. So when we would try to interact with each other, they'll be, yeah, 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 yeah. So it just was, it was self-defeating in a sense. So not be beneficial in a way that both of you are speaking different languages. So he, he could see things that you're not seeing and you can't see things, or he or she, or you can, you can see things that they're not seeing. Well, you would think so. You would definitely think so. But it's more difficult when 
year-related. It's more, it's more difficult. <laughs> well, it's I mean, I, I, I don't know. I work with family too. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you know. Right now, I'm also working with family. But I, I think there was some un- unresolved things that we had in our childhood that had its own kind of part to play in the palaver. So, um, like I said, in my opinion, he's probably smarter than I am. But we just entirely different people and 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 that that kind of spelt was the death knell of of what we were doing so anyways when we started allegory and we can kind of move into that now i that's actually on the end of my depression because i went to see a therapist who happens to be my business partner now right 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 so we're talking with him it was more than just business related things it was stuff with women and all these things drama was having and i couldn't resolve what was going on in my life it was quite a tornado so i said hey you know what work with me for a little bit he did and then i realized again again better again control i was like you're very good at this this is your hand say your hand say iodk i say you're very good at this i said there must be some way this is the classic question of putting two things together so there must be some way that we can mix what I do and what you do. So let's put neuroscience and psychology together. Right, he was a was like a neuro counselor. He's you know he's he's um he does counseling counseling okay. primarily. We call him a behavior change consultant. Right, it's okay. quite the marketing term, but it, yeah, it works. That's what it, sounds, it sounds glorified. I mean, I was saw <laughs> yeah. like a light shine when he said <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But it it is it is it is it is the term. So, anyways, um. Yeah, that that started off really well. We we bought equipment and we would use uh, EEG as electroencephalograms to kind of assist. I spent about 10, 15 minutes last night trying to pronounce that electronic Electroencephalogram or encephalogram. Uh, Electro, electricity. Encephalo, the brain, and gram is just like a message. Okay. Right? So you're taking you're taking electrical messages from the brain and putting it into, um, in, in this case, a computer. Right. Right. And yeah, and it started to accelerate the therapy process because we were visualizing what was going on in the client's brain while they were going through the talk and whatever it is. And stuff that would take three sessions or more to kind of figure out, we were getting done in one. So for us, that's like, you know, as 3X, that's, that's real good, right? And we had a client come in in two cases. Actually, one of our, we had a, like real hard clients at the start, which is real interesting. One had claustrophobia, had some problem on a train, and he was stuck there. He was a teacher as well, and it was affecting his ability to work. And in five sessions, no claustrophobia, zero, and also no medication. We never tell our clients to not take medication, but that was what happened. And we had another one. She's a surgeon. She had panic attacks, terrible panic attacks. And if you listening and you've had panic attacks, you know what I'm talking about. But she was having panic attacks for more than 11 years and she'd have as many as seven in a day. Seven in a day. And obviously that is not great for a surgeon. So she couldn't work after a while. She was taking meds. And today she takes zero medication and has zero panic attacks. Zero. So when I started to see the effect that this work had, I said, no, nah, man, this is, this is something very, very special. Very, very, very special. Because what we teach people basically is self-regulation. We teach them how to control their bodies and how to control their minds. And I said, okay. I looked at stuff with athletes and I, I looked at the programs that they would do with them and I, I read lots of, of, of books on it and obviously leaning on the stuff I did in my degree, I said, okay, we can let's let's see how we can package this and deliver this to customers. 
So one of the customers that we we done this with is um, we actually worked with agents from Guardian Life as well doing peak performance training with them. Right. We actually have a quiet little pilot going right now with ath- with athletes as well. We're really trying to grow that part too. So this is like peak performance something like yes, yeah, it's peak performance. Sales and athletes that so yeah. people are to perform at mm-hmm. a high level in whatever they do. That's right. That's right. How do you get the most out of yourself? You know, people say they go to work and they're there for eight hours for the day, but in reality, they probably have about, if you had to put all the time that they worked properly, it's about three hours. Yeah. <laughs> it's three hours. Three to four hours. That's a good yeah. day. That's it. That's really what you did. So you have all this time that it's kind of, you've just been available to work and not necessarily working. And that becomes important for you especially if you're doing your own business because you can't just be available for your work. You have to be able to get your work done, right? You have to be able to execute. You have to be able to deliver if you're studying the same thing. And what we realize is that this has applications for students. It has applications for business people and so on. So we started a program called the Focus Clinic. Right. Okay. So the Focus Clinic is a program where we teach students from ages 10 to 60. The oldest that we've had was around 60. She was actually doing ACC, I believe it or not and we teach them how to focus. It might sound strange, but when we were younger, it's an interesting thing. Um, actually, as a matter of fact, it probably is the same in other parts of the world. Your parents would tell you, just focus and do your work. Just sit down, focus and do your work. You know, And you think, well, you know how to do the work, but they never taught us how to focus. Yeah, but it's easier to focus back then, I find. Because we were younger and we just had to do it. Well, right now I see that a lot of children have problems with focusing. I mean, there are a lot more distractions yeah, now. There's true, a lot true, more true. technology yes. and everything. So maybe it's designed the, to distract you. That's true. That is very, very true. It maybe it is that the way technology has gone, it's made us make it made it a little difficult for us to focus on things. But the idea was, how do you teach somebody to focus? First of all, is it possible? Do you just have it or you don't? But what we realize is that your brain has a particular way that it behaves when it's focused, when it's single, single in purpose. It's a certain, a very, very stereotypical way that it behaves. I've seen it with artists when they paint. I've seen it with people even when they're on Facebook, on their phones. There's a very stereotypical way that it behaves. So we said, okay, let's try to replicate that. Is that the state of flow that you're talking about? Yes, basically. Basically. You see, what happens effectively is that your brain starts to shut down the places that the parts of the brain that you really need. So you ever was in, in your zone, like your real, real, as you say, state of flow. Right. And you look up and then a whole hour pass and then realize an hour pass. Yeah, you didn't eat lunch, you didn't do anything, but you you know, you well, for me to be like the Excel sheet is yeah. done, the report is done, you know, you're feeling good. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I know what you mean. And that that your brain is in a in a very specific state when it's doing that. And it happens with athletes, it happens with students, it happens with adults. Right. So what we do is we teach them how to achieve that. Oh, you teach you how to hack flow. Yes. Oh, Basically, nice. teach them how to hack flow. Okay. Right? And we've seen, I'll go first with the students. The biggest difference that we've seen during during the um, focus clinic is a 68% increase in her grades. That's one girl. 68. 68%. So she was getting around like 30 marks for one of the classes, and she started to get 45, 50. And then another one was, the lowest was with her was 55. So 55%. 55% increase in her grades. And the other one was 60, 65% increase. And for us, that was a big thing. Because first of all, it, we had just piloted the program and we're now opening it up to the public. 
and we now got a chance to really look at how it affecting like the grades. We started also to record the data from all of the sessions so that we can go back and, and study the data afterward. And that's super important for us too. And I said, okay, I wonder if it happened like that for other students. We didn't just see uh, increased grades and all the students had improvements in their grades. And this is a non-academic program, right? All of them had improvements in their grades. Not just that, all of them had reduced anxiety during, during their exams. And you know that thing where you're, you're just, your mind goes blank? They don't have that. They're able to sequester themselves, calm themselves during and before the exam. The other thing is that all of the students, and this is not something that we can plan for, so we don't, I don't advertise it, but I tell the parents when they do call, it is that they have behavioral improvements. And I'll give you one example. I'll give you two, actually. One case, we had a student had autism. And he had real big problems in class, especially math class. He also had problems with fluency. When we finished the program with him, he was part of the pilot. He topped his Sp Spanish class in orals. His grades improved. Not all of his grades improved. Some remained the same, right? But his grades improved. And on top of that, he started to finish his homework before he got home. So he finished his homework in school before he wouldn't even write the homework in the homework book. But now he was actually getting all his homework done before his mom came to pick him up in the evening. So for us, that was huge because what we found effectively with the Focus Clinic as a program is a fundamental. A fundamental. I'll try to make that make sense. If you don't know basic arithmetic, you cannot do simultaneous equations. You cannot do algebra. Mm -hmm. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. So what we've done is found a fundamental once you find a fundamental that's key for business people listening and you probably already know it and you might be able to articulate it much better than I do but once you find a fundamental then you can basically multiply a process by three, five, ten times and that's truly where innovation is but you have to find the fundamentals just the other day when I was in Toronto I spoke to Dr. Keita Deming here. Mm, well, Keita, you know Keita, Keita yeah, you yeah, did yeah, a yeah. TEDx talk. Yeah. Yeah, Keita yeah. is the guy behind TEDx Sport of Spain. And he was talking about the innovative process. He was likening it to the process of learning salsa. And he was okay. saying that once you know the basic moves, once you know the basic moves and you have enough moves in your arsenal, you're able to pivot mm -hmm. and use certain maneuvers, whatever maneuvers is in your arsenal mm -hmm. to recover from whatever, it may be a miss a beat or whatever it is. Yeah, And that's resonant with what I'm saying. Yeah. Because once you, once you have those fundamentals or once you find those fundamentals, that will have a huge powerful result. So if I would say, if you have, to, if you're thinking about your business today or whatever it is, one, think about what is the core thing that you're influencing. What is the core problem? What's the center of it? Of course, there's some, um, you have to build the parachute as you're going in, right? But you have to look at, look at the process, dig, separate it, distill it as far as you can, and obviously go test. That's one thing that we learned during this entire program, entire program, that the fundamental that we found or that we changed was self-regulation. That's core. That's it. That's it. That's what you teach at the Focus Clinic. Yes, effectively. But well, we do drills. We we do lots and lots of drills. So we simulate difficulties that you'll meet in the real world. Basic ones is reading. They have to be able to regulate themselves while they're doing cognitive tasks. So it's kind of like we teach them how to achieve a, a yogic state, like when you're doing meditation. But you have to be able to work at the same time. How how do you work and and do yoga at the same time. It's not exactly yoga, but the point is they maintain in a particular mental state while actually delivering work while on the cognitive load. 
And that for us was incredible. But the most powerful part of it is that by the end of the course, their brain does it for them automatically. So they don't have to think about it. I noticed that first with the, the people who did the um, peak performance training for the salespeople. The people who learned the techniques, they did it automatically and they could sense that the brain was doing it for them. It's like, I didn't do it. All I know is feeling like my brain was doing it for me. That's powerful because now you're basically teaching the brain scripts to run for you, to work for you. Your brain is basically a tool. It is not you. It is a tool. And that's one, that's one of the things that people discover during the program. They discover that, wait, now I have power over this thing. It's not just something that's controlling me. All right. So let's just get some practical self for the audience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How do you teach somebody the power to self-regulate? Because this could save people in so many situations. I mean, exams, work deadlines, mm-hmm. time management, even just focusing in meetings. I mean, even, even if like you have focusing a focusing on uh, this interview right now. Yes, 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 absolutely. And even in like people who have to prepare witnesses for court and these kinds of things, right? Or, or like there's, there's a lot of applications, so many applications for this, right? So a few things. One, we start with the body. We teach basic, it's like breathing exercises. That's fundamental and anybody could do that at home in the house because your rate of breathing affects your nervous system, your sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. It basically affects your heart rate. And you know, if you're anxious, your heart rate's up. But if you breathe slowly and regularly, then your heart rate will actually reduce in speed. And we teach them to be able to tell between when they're neutral, when they're stressed, and when they're relaxed. And the main reason why is because they have to know where to go. That's what we do. We teach them where the safe place is, right? So if you're stressed, you're worried, whatever, go there. Right there is the safe place to go. Okay, so that's one. That's the body side of it. And with the brain side of it, we use EEG, electroencephalograms, and we visualize it for them to see. And then we teach them how to change it from one state to the next, right? It's more of a feeling than they don't have to think to change it, but they have to feel it to change it. So basically, you're teaching them how to alter the different neurotransmitters in your brain, you know, the, the dopamine, the oxytocin, the serotonin, the um, endorphins. Mm-hmm. But maybe not so much endorphins. Endorphins is more like on the climax and stuff, on mm-hmm. the highs and the lows or whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. So basically, you're teaching them how to handle those so, chemicals. Uh, well, how to, how to manipulate I, them. I will, yes, they do in, in, in eventuality, they do, right, at the end. But what we teach them how to do is to change the electrical activity. Of course, that's mediated by the neurotransmitters, right? right? But we teach them how to change the electrical activity because that's what the EEG measures. It measures the the electrical activity in the um, brain through the surface of the scalp, right? Okay. Through the scalp, yeah. So I can't say that it does the neurotransmitters, but obviously it does because that's what the brain uses to communicate for the most part. It obviously uses electrochemical signals, but neurotransmitters affect the story. But we teach them either to upregulate or downregulate the activity in various parts of the brains to, to achieve that, right? right. In, in the first level of the course for the Focus Clinic, which is called the Freshman Program, they learn just one, one state. Later on, they learn others. And yeah, like I mentioned, the results have been phenomenal. I think one of them that we do, one of the drills that they have, they have to do is they have two videos playing at the same time and they have to be able to separate the videos and pick out key information from them. We tell the parents jokingly that we organize this program so your children could study in a FET. That's how we, that's how we organize. Wait, that'd be useful. I need to, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, where do I sign <laughs> yeah, up? <laughs> where do I sign up? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So anyways, I, that's a, a very long jaunt through... Uh, my story and the focus clinic is what i'm working on right now okay. it's like our marquee product i get inquiries about like I, right now notifications coming through my phone <laughs> i get inquiries about it maybe eight ten times a day 
so for us, it's, it's really, really good. And we're growing the program. We're actually going to execute in Barbados this year. So we go into another country to do it. What we actually want to do is to find people in the Caribbean or wherever, primarily Caribbean is where we want to execute right now, that have private schools. So you're saying that after eight sessions, people are usually good to go. Eight. Yeah, they see a difference. They see a difference by by four sessions. Yeah, by four sessions, there's a difference, but they have to do the drills. So if I do four sessions with you, I'm just good to go. I'm I'm ready to go and pass my exam in September. Um, yes. You'll have a difference, but you see, because you've learned the techniques doesn't mean that you could use the techniques everywhere. So that's why we put the drills in there, right? So six of the sessions are done in a mind lab, and then two of the sessions are done online. And part of it is for motivation and things like that. That's primarily for the parents with students and things, mm-hmm. um, children. And then part of it is also with diet and dietetics. We have a, a nutritionist that delivers that part of the program. So before we get to the diet and nutrition part, right? I mean, I want to give the listeners something to take away, right? You spoke about hacking the, the state of flow earlier. Mm-hmm. I remember listening to our podcast last year talking about the hacking the state of flow. I mean, I can't remember it clearly. I know initially it's some sort of, you have to struggle with the information, struggle with the information, struggle with it, and then get to a place where you're comfortable with the information. Mm-hmm. And then in that place, it's at your peak performance level, that place where you're, in that state of flow. Mm-hmm. And then after you execute, after you're productive or what, or what have you, then you have to rest to recover. That's right. What you just described is like basically like a race, right? When you go out on the track, I'm not an athlete, but I understand the basic principles. You go out on the track and then you run, obviously, unless it's 100 meters. Generally speaking, you go as fast as you can for the 100 meters. If it's a, sorry, if it's 400 meters, then you pace yourself along and you push yourself at the end, or if it's 800, basically. So the idea is that you need to know when to peak. You understand? You need to know when to peak. But most people, especially ones who come to the focus clinic, their brain has not rested in years. They don't know what their brain feels like when it's calm, so their brain always peeking. It's always trying, like they always like this. So if somebody passes in the corridor, they have to stare at the window. When they, when they read, when they have their notes, and you'll know if you have difficulty focusing. I'm going to say this one. Um, you read in a paragraph, and you keep having to go back and read over the paragraph again I and again. Difficulty focusing and again. Done. Yes. Well, you got to come and check us. That's what you have to do. And yeah, so they need to know when to peak because if you know when to peak, and also you know when to rest then you basically have the formula for progress. This is what it is doing in the gym. You work out hard, then you go and sleep. That's the principle. You know, sleep management is, is really trending nowadays, you know. Back in the day, people would be glorified and praised. Hey, you did an all-nighter? Yeah, man, you're a rock star. You're mm-hmm, awesome. Mm-hmm, no, mm-hmm. you tell somebody you do an all-nighter. What are you doing? Are you crazy? Mm-hmm. No, I, I, I'm with that camp that says all-nighters are unwise. Because we need we need sleep as human beings, right? We need sleep for repair for the bodies, all your muscles and, and all these kinds of things. Um, as a matter of fact, most of the healing process, when I say most, like probably 70 to 80% of the healing process is actually done while you're unconscious, okay? And the same is true for your memory consolidation. Your memories get consolidated when you sleep. So some people decide to stay up whole night and study, and then they go the next day and they examine your blank. Is yeah, you're blank because nothing stuck to the canvas, you went in and you study. you did all your hours great but you didn't take the plastic off the canvas that's basically what happened so what we do at, at the highest level of the program that's the olympian level mm-hmm. is we teach people how to put themselves to sleep and command right obviously it's not like you snap and then you're unconscious like hypnotism but we teach them how to put themselves to sleep right because as a, some adults 
I have a problem with that sometimes too, is that we don't put ourselves to sleep, we fall asleep. You understand? So our body just gives up on being awake. Kesson, how the hell do you put yourself to sleep? I would love to learn. If yeah. I could learn one thing <laughs> today, mm-hmm. it would be put myself to sleep. How yeah. do you put yourself to sleep? Well, you have to come and check us for that. Because that, the thing is, when you go to bed, it's like all, and we were talking about this earlier, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. all your demons come rushing to you. It's like, oh my God, I did not reply to that email. Oh my God, I forgot to do this. Oh my God, this and that. Mm-hmm. You know? So how do you, I don't want to say exercise those demons. How do you ignore those demons? I'll, I'll, I'll explain a little bit. Put mind at rest. Right? Uh, well, obviously, you have to come check us, right? And that's, that's a shameless plug. But <laughs> we come in and you'll have to we come. come in. We come yeah. in. <laughs> yeah, but I'll, I'll explain. So, first of all, um, the prefrontal cortex is responsible for executive function, decision-making, and also something called task switching. And oftentimes, the people that come to the program, they have dysregulation of the activity there but that i mean it's higher than it should be so their brain's constantly like doing this right and but that's important for us as human beings for our survival because if you're in the safari or you're driving on the road you want to be able to attend to what's going on around you that's very very important but it's not necessarily expedient in every single scenario in our lives so what we teach them to do is to downregulate it because if you're downregulated if it's responsible for task switching that means it does not switch as readily. So the threshold for switching becomes higher, which means when you lay down in bed and you sleep, you don't have this kind of lily pot jumping from thought to thought type right. thing, right? I don't know if lily pot is a word. You know the thing they are thinking about a pond and then you have these little leaves Leap on frogs, it. Leap frogs, yeah, okay, let's fine, whatever. So anyways, <laughs> the, the point is you don't have that jumping from thought to thought. Right. Because jumping from thought to thought is you basically have these images or these feelings that just pop up in your head and then you always oh, grab that one. And then you grab the next one. Yeah. And then you grab the next one. But when you use the techniques, you actually prevent yourself from jumping across. Yeah. And the other thing, when you down-regulate some of the different waves that are being produced in your brain, you actually permit some of the other waves that are important, like delta waves. You permit that to rise. And when you permit that to rise, you... So I'm, I'm just over here pretending I know what delta waves are. Well, yeah, I, I, I didn't want to make everything super technical, <laughs> but that's what we do. We teach you how to control the different waves in, in your brain. Okay. We also mentioned diet and nutrition. Now, I listen to another podcast. I listen to a lot of podcasts, obviously. Yeah. And they spoke about brain food. So they, they mentioned avocados, okay. almonds, blueberries, dark chocolates, and all these things. So do you subscribe to that belief? Or like when you speak about diet and nutrition for a healthy mind, what are you referring to? So first of all, I lean heavily on a nutritionist who's on the team. Her name is Kirsten Church. I don't endeavor to do too much there, okay. right? Because I'm not a nutritionist. But that being said, there are things that we can do in terms of how we eat and drink that would really, really help our brains. A key one is being hydrated. Okay, that is very, very obvious. As a matter of fact, not having good hydration affects your ability to sleep. Okay. Another one is making sure that you eat on time. As a matter of fact, there's some research I was doing because I was having these episodes, these depressive episodes, like within the last couple of months. I was like, what's going on? It didn't make any sense because my life was actually like, I really enjoyed my life. <laughs> like, like, nice. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have all the money that I want, but I'm so enjoying what I do. I get up every day and I'm fulfilled. I'm really enjoying my life. And I was, I was feeling low and I said, I don't understand what's going on. I don't understand what's going on. And I realized that how I eat affects how I think. 
how I eat affects how I think. And this is super important, especially as an entrepreneur, because your brain is literally what drives your business. So, one, I realized that your gut flora or the bacteria in your gut affects your mental health. Now, that might seem a bit, a bit, what is the word I want to say, stretched, but I'll explain. Your gut flora is basically the bacteria that's inside your gut, right? If you have probiotics and you have healthy gut flora, what you basically do is permit the absorption of tryptophan into your bloodstream and permit the production of other things that are precursors to serotonin. And if you know what serotonin is, it's responsible for mood regulation and also good mood. But guess what? There was some some work that was done that suggested that up to 80% of your serotonin levels in your brain, in your body for that matter, is as a result of healthy gut flora. 80%. You get what I'm saying there, right? Yeah, that's a lot. That's a it means your mental health in a lot of ways is connected to your gut health. So we need those probiotics. You need the probiotics. But here's the thing. I So I, I wasn't sure, but I said, okay, let me give it a try, right? And it's possible that it's placebic, but I have not had the rumination since. I went and I bought two days supply of, because that's what the pharmacist re- recommended. I bought two days supply of probiotics. Then I changed my diet from being a lot of flesh foods I still eat meat from on occasion, but I stopped eating as much and I started to have food that had more fiber in it. They also gave me a Nexium because I was just, and I feel like stomach discomfort. As soon as I took the Nexium, I stopped having the ruminations. But before that, the day before I was, I took ginkgo and vitamin B because that's real good for your brain now. And the ruminations went away when I took that, but then it came back. And then I thought, this is strange. Okay, maybe it's not that because I was taking multivitamins. I thought maybe I was low on something. And then I decided, okay, here's what I'm going to do. Go to the pharmacist, tell any problem, and I'm going to take what he tells me to take. So I don't necessarily believe in taking lots of drugs, but I wanted to experiment with myself safely. So <laughs> I don't believe in taking drugs, so, but I wanted to experiment. <laughs> yeah. So I took the Nexium. When I took the Nexium, and if you know what Nexium is for, it's, it's an anti-inflammatory, and it's really for people who have acid reflux, right? Okay. That's what it's for. But when I took it, within 20 minutes, I stopped having the ruminations. So I was like, why does something in just a tablet that helps settle my stomach stop me from having ruminations? That doesn't make any sense. So I said, fine. The next time wore off, and then I started to get my ruminations again. So I said, okay, that's weird. So then I took the probiotics. When I took the probiotics, over the course of the next two days, I stopped having the ruminations. I also started to eat more bananas and other kinds of uh, healthy food, and I stopped having it. So anyways, coming to the take-home message. The take-home message is this. How you eat affects your mind. That comfort food that you want, that KFC, it doesn't comfort you after, after you eat it. Listen, when I eat junk food, I just get bad dreams, isn't it? Yes, I get... I get headaches and I get nightmares when I have really, really spicy food sometimes. Not all the time, but sometimes, yeah. No, it's a serious thing. Yeah. So the, the idea, and that's what we, we kind of work with, sorry, well, that's one of the key premises for us at the Focus Clinic and, and Allegory, it is that your mind and your body connected and your mind and body converse with each other. So you think that is your woman, that you know, you're studying at a bank and your heart hurting you and whatever it is, but guess what, partner, it might just be that you're hungry or you got flora in a mess. Now, I'm not saying that's what is what it is, but the idea is that you're made up of so many different things, so many different parts that it would be remiss of you to just think that, oh, God, I need to run back and get with her. No, 
it would be, it'd be remiss for you to think that it's because of whatever and you need to take drugs for it. But in reality, a lot of, a lot of it is that you just need to make sure your body is healthy. Now, if I knew this, I would not have gone through a lot of the pain that I did, you know, with my depression. Because at that same time, when I was having my issues with communique, I wasn't eating properly. You understand? I wasn't eating well. I wasn't eating healthily. But it makes a huge difference. It makes a huge difference. Even if you're not getting as much exercise as you should, it makes a huge difference what you put inside your gut. I can't like say that enough. Like that's one of them things that you get a piece of gold here for free. <laughs> yes, man. You love mm-hmm. it. Thanks a lot, man. This has been great. I, I know we, we reached the end of it. No, we didn't reach the end, but say, I know you want to keep going. No, I don't. I, <laughs> not, not that I want to stop, but it, the, the podcast is long. I'm sure you're going to trim this up for, for them, but the podcast not is long. No, I might just no? release it. Just. Oh, okay. Cool, cool, cool. <laughs> no, that's fine. Say, um, <laughs> but we didn't even get to talk about mine art as yet. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> That's one fun next show, I, I would say. But I, I'll give a little slim on it. So during the work that we did, we realized that we can actually capture this data that people are using in their sessions and turn it into something creative because I love creativity. So we took their brain waves and we... Brain waves? We took their brain waves mm-hmm. and we turned it into a piece of art that they could hang on their wall and stretch canvas with wood frame and everything that they could put up on their wall. The One of the reasons why I started it was because there are people who had Alzheimer's and they were kind of losing their memories and losing themselves, but we wanted to have some physical representation of the memories, especially for the families. Because as if you start getting forgotten, it is really hurt sometimes, especially if you love the person. So the idea is was to give them some kind of anchor for the humanity and the dignity of, of the person that they're with. But people got so excited about it, and <laughs> we started, people just say, I want to do mine, I want to do mine, and we started to do events and stuff <laughs> like that, right? So we do events, ever so often and then people now call us to do like corporate stuff team builders and that kind of that kind of thing but the basic thing is that people want to tell a story people have a story to tell and while you're telling your story your emotions you know all the images and all that's kind of running through your brain and it affects the state that your brain is in and we use the the eeg devices to capture that and to create the images on um for you to hang on your wall that's interesting yes yeah, that's real fun for us and it's really, really fun. technology you'd have used to predict this year's soccer, uh, this year's road match. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, yes, we had something, well, we have something called the Brain Choice Awards, right? right. For us, it's very, very important. It hasn't made us any money yet, but the idea is for us as Caribbean people to start thinking about the effect that the things that we do have on the brain. As a matter of fact, the people in the Western world, in America and otherwise, they take that very seriously in all of the content that they do. That's why neuromarketing is a thing, right? They take that seriously and they spend lots of money on that. So we wanted to bring that here. We wanted to have that conversation here. And the Brain Trust Awards for Soka was for us to have some very clear way to, or another way, another method for determining what music is good and what music is not. Because most people's brains respond, not most people, all people, brain their, their brains respond very similarly to music, if not identically, right? That was real powerful. That was real exciting. Yeah, I was looking at the video and I see there'll be people sitting down there that's, you know, not really dancing and stuff. There people be whining like they're in a fet, yeah. you know? And the thing is like the results will still be the same. So you could be sitting down there stiff, but your brain is in a party. Yeah, yeah that what you just said there is exactly it. Exactly it. Now, obviously there's, there's taste and different things that have their own part to play in, in music and we're not saying that taste doesn't have its part to play, but what you just said is the premise, that's the premise, that our brains respond to music, our brains respond to content that we see 
in very similar ways and using technology like EEG and, and other kinds, right? There's GSR, there's galvanic skill response. They can tell us a lot about, about the content that we consume or the content that we make. And we really wanted to use it to kind of get into the world of um, marketing as well. Neuroscience as a business, but I love this. I love this. Mm -hmm. So when you look beyond the landscape, right? Yeah, I know you're, you're pretty much pioneering in this field, but when you see emerging in terms of like creativity and decision making in, in neuroscience and even in the broader science field, but let's make it focus on neuroscience mm -hmm. aside from like the artificial intelligence and yeah, all yeah. that. Okay, so here's what I think neuroscience uh, in, in, in the marketplace is extremely important. As a matter of fact, I think it will continue to balloon because it's growing. It will continue to balloon because you basically have a data-rich focus group. That's what you have. For instance, with the Soka Brain Choice Awards, like for each person we had, it was 100,000 data points. Really? Crazy. Yeah, it was 131,000 or something like that data points for roughly each person. That's huge. And it's all based on systems that you guys built. Yeah. So in part, in part, some of it is third-party software that we use, but some of it, some of that we have to go and process the data after, right? It collects the data for us and we process it. That's cool. So that's real powerful because that's something that a lot of these companies don't get. You get a focus group, but any focus group, you might have a, a bully. And he's not necessarily a bad person, but he kind of drives the direction of the group, you know, and they, they try to do different things to kind of mitigate for that, but it's, it can't escape it all the time. But now... Imagine you have a focus group and you get a 100,000 point data point from it. Even if you have a focus group and you get 100 data points from it, yeah. it's more than you usually that, get, that's right? That's a bit of data. That's a lot of that data. That data is worth some money. That data is worth a lot. So what we basically have is a system to get very, very granular with what people like about your product, what people like about your service, and, and so on. So yes, put simply... The use of neuroscience in the marketplace, the use of neuroscience in business is going to become a staple. And the people who control that data are going to control the market. And other people, like every other places who can't afford it, will be, who can't afford to exercise it themselves, will either be paying us to do it or be buying the data from us. Guaranteed. All right, there you go. Mm -hmm. Where can we find you, Castan? Okay, so if you want to reach us, you can find us at allegory.org, A-L-L-E-G-O-R-I.org. Um, that's our webpage. You can also find us on Facebook and engage with us there, message us. Um, it's A-L-L-E-G-O-R-I, and you can find us on Facebook. We respond very quickly to messages. Most times I'm the one responding because I like to engage with customers and potential clients. People message us for collaborations and different things. So, yeah, please, please feel free to message. Um, it, what we're looking for right now in particular is to grow the focus clinic. So if you have a, a school, you know, a private school, and you want to engage, by all means, reach out. We, we're interested. We're very, very interested in engaging like that. Yeah. Okay. So right now, Kasten, I want to give you open mic, mm -hmm. open forum, open platform to say anything that you want to say, that you want to make sure you get out to the audience that we didn't get to cover today. Mm-hmm. Before you wrap. One thing comes to mind, and this is super important, at least I think so. The moment you conquer yourself, you will conquer the world. That is, in my opinion, it's very profound, but I realized that in my work, my greatest stumbling block wasn't my business, wasn't my team, it was myself. And now I'm not necessarily going to carry the ways of all of the challenges that I had, but having discipline, having self-control, 
is very important. Not caring about what your mother and your father thinks or your girlfriend or even your children that is powerful because if you could overcome what you think of yourself and what they think of you, nobody in your world could face you. As a matter of fact, I think Gary Vaynerchuk, he talks about stuff like that, right? Well, you listen to Gary? Yeah, on, on occasion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, yes. <laughs> Once you conquer yourself, the world will bow to you. That's my humble submission. And that's the only thing that I have not said today. Podcast will. there you have it. Mastering Your Mind with Keston Wilkins. Subscribe to Caribbean Power Lunch at caribbeanpowerlunch.com slash subscribe. Check us out on CastBox, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you listen to your podcasts. And with that, Podcast World, Keston. Good night. <laughs> <Or> goodbye. <laughs> we are out.